Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper, make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave the names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God, we praise you for your creation, uh, for the sun and the moon and the, the earth, the rain, the ways that you have so uniquely and... Um, With, with power created the world and God is just thank you that we have your word that we can come and to see what you have done and see what you were like and we can can in, through that we can come to know you we can that you've allowed us to to see that we've allowed, you've allowed us to see your will see your character see your plan for all of eternity and God, as we look at Genesis 2 today, as we, 
as we look at the creation of mankind, I, I just ask you would give us a, a, a new love for your creation, a new love for, for you, um, as we, again, see your intimate desire to create and to be God. God, I just pray that, that you would be moving this morning, that again, just as we prayed last week, that this would not be just another story that we're familiar with, but that, that you would speak to us, that, that we would see this as, as all about you, as all pointing towards Christ, and that we would come to worship you more, to love you more as we experience you in your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So I was trying to get my phone set up because we usually record our sermons, as most of you know, and last week was all sorts of wonky. Like when Skylar read, it sounded great, it sounded wonderful, and then when, I, when it switches to me, it was every other word, basically, of me talking, so it was very, sounded awful. So have backup just in case. Um, so if you weren't here last week, or if you're, I guess, the few people that do listen to the recordings that weren't here, I'm going to sum up last week very, very briefly, um, because we began our walk through Genesis. Um, and we spent really last week looking at, at kind of a big picture view. We, we didn't talk a lot of details of each day of creation or anything. We talked a big picture of God speaking the world in, into motion. God, with, with the power of his voice, creating. And that we, we really kind of, I tried to set the picture, establish that this is God's story. That, that God that God's spoken into motion. He is the one sustaining it. He's the, it's all going exactly according to his will. And that every part that we read here in Genesis is all pointing towards Jesus. That there's not a portion in here that's not about Jesus. Um, it's that Charles Spurgeon quote of all roads lead to London. All, in, all roads in England lead to London. And all, every word, every story in the Bible leads to Jesus. But something we talked about was that God does not just, he did not just create. He did not just create and then step back. And then say, okay, all that I've created, go. I'm going to watch from afar. That's not at all how God created this world. Um, and something we're going to see over and over today is that God did not just create and back away, but he continually is providing. That all through the creation account, all through Genesis, all through the Bible, and even today, God is providing. God is providing. So Genesis 2 is really just a more in-depth account of part of what we see in Genesis 1. It talks more in detail of what happened on day 6 when God created mankind. And I want to... Brenna read Genesis 2. I want to go back and read the part of Genesis 1 where we, we talked about the creation of man. So I'm just going to read Genesis 1, 26 through 31 again, just to, to remind us of what we read last week. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of, of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given, breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So already, just even if we didn't have Genesis 2, if we just saw this account in Genesis 1, it's, a, it's obvious that God's creation of man here is different than the other six days. There, there's something different. He goes into more detail here. And if you're taking notes... If you're taking notes, here's the first thing to write. Mankind has been uniquely created different than the rest of creation. Man and woman, mankind, have been uniquely created different than the rest of creation. And what we see is that man, what stands out here is, he said, God says, man, I'm going to make them in my image. In the image of God. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So understanding that we're different, we see that we've been created in the image of God. And understanding that we've been made in the image of God, we must understand that we must value human life. So again, I just read 27 again, but... In 26, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. God had just created, last week, we kind, of, we kind of flew over, God's creating everything, the sun, the moon, the earth, the sea, the living um, plants, the creeping animals, the fish in the sea, all of that God created. But none of it did he say, I'm making this in my image. It was all, he made it and it was good. But none of it he said, made in his image. Until this week. But if you remember, like, kind of the big overarching theme and point from last week was just, like, the, the fact that God created all that there is, this sense of awe that should, it should elicit from us and just of worship and understanding what God has created and how amazing it is. But if you put that together with this, that, that man are created in the image of God, it's wild to think that the power of God, this... The, he spoke it all into motion with his voice. That big God yet created man in his image. It's just it's a, a contrast there that I think is incredible. And there's been all sorts of conversations and books and articles and research studies, all sorts of people that have spent lots of time looking at what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What, what does that actually mean? And I, I looked into this a lot this week, spent time, it's like, man, this person says that, this person says that, but really they all kind of came back to the same thing. They don't know. <laughs> like that's really, every single thing that I read came back to, we're not really sure what this means. I think the Bible leaves this kind of open a little bit where we doesn't say, this is what it means to be made in the image of God. Everything that I read was like, well, we can kind of speculate here are some things. 
And I think that's wise for these readers that it's always a good idea when reading something. When the Bible doesn't specifically say, we have to hold it just a little bit loosely. Even if we say, we think the Bible's showing us this, but the Bible doesn't specifically say here. I mean, some have pointed to a man's ability to reason. That seems to stand out from most of creation. Maybe it's man's ability to relate to one another, to know their creator. Some pointed to the, the somewhat of an intrinsic moral compass that humans seem to have, although I would call that into major question. Um, but the, the list goes on and on and on of things people see when they think of the image of God. And the big idea that I want to get across is what Genesis 2 here and Genesis 1 and 2 says and that is that mankind is the only created being that is made in the image of God, different from the rest of creation. Whatever that difference is, it is absolutely important. We don't have to understand the nuts and the bolts and the, the fine details of what it means to be made in the image of God. We don't have to understand every single small point to understand that we have been made different and to understand and believe wholeheartedly that we are made in the image of God. Every single man, woman, boy, girl, made in the image of God. And we see from here and in the rest of the Bible that God's provision, again, God provides, His provision for mankind is different than His provision for the rest of creation. We see that a couple different places. So mankind is made different. We've been made in the image of God. But this has been so, I think, so skewed in the culture today. The, the importance of mankind, the, the being made in the image of God. It's more and more of like a rejected belief. And as, as the church, I, I think understanding that mankind, every single person, is made in the image of God, leads us to value every single person, every single Man, woman, boy, girl, child. This, in, the, in the church, this is often referred to as the sanctity of life. People will say, the church is, is for the sanctity of life. We, we value life. We value life. And this, it is this belief. Matthew, do you want to close that door? It's going to get really cold in here. <laughs> Thank you. I'll cut that out of the recording. Uh, but it's, it's that, it's that belief, that, that the value of the importance of human life made in the image of God, it's that that has led the church to stand up, specifically seen in, in abortion, that we value human life, that, that that includes the life that, that begins a conception and and then it starts there. We value every single life. And I think it's wonderful that the church is so known for standing up against this. But as we value human life, as we say life is important no matter what stage of life it is at, it can't stop with abortion. I think this means valuing all life, no matter of race, no matter of color. It means valuing and loving our own enemies. It means fighting against prostitution and sex trafficking. It means valuing human life and fighting for the rights of those living with disabilities. It means fighting and valuing and holding the value for every single person who's been made in the image 
of God. And as the church, as followers of Jesus, we cannot shy away from this. We can't shy away from speaking up and into these situations. Again, the church, I think, has made their point, has, has been has very well known for their fight against abortion, as they should. But it can't stop there. Because every single person, no matter of their race, no matter of their color, no matter of their cultural heritage, no matter of their legal status, has been made in the image of God. That means they held value. That means they've been created in the image of God. And this is something to be fought for. But again, that image of God, that people hold value because they're made in the image of God. It's, been so, it's so skewed, I think, in our culture now. I mean, it's almost just like, I've heard conversations about, well, just go do something good. Go do something good in the world. Go adopt a pet. Go save a rainforest. Go adopt a child. Go do something good. And it's like, how can those three things be even put in the same category? How, how does that happen? I mean, Brenna and I were talking about a conversation that um, Brenna was in, and it was like talking about these, these kids that had, that had come to school that were such a, coming from such a not good situation, and their dog had followed them to, to school. And there was a teacher that was like, oh man, it's so sad the dog has to live in those situations. It's so sad that, that, that the, the Humane Society should step in and take that dog away. It's like, hold on a second. Like, what about the child? What about the kid that's living in that same situation? Not equal. I, and get, I love dogs. love animals. I think we should value and treat responsibly the rest of creation. Yes. But they're not equal. They're not equal. And it's, just, it's that kind of thing that I think, I think is run rampant today. What are we known? As followers of Jesus, what are we known for valuing? Is it life? Human life? What do we stand up for? So last week I had you imagine this beautiful creation. This, this whatever you pictured, this, whatever God created. I'm, I'm curious to ask at some other time what you all imagined. And I'm sure it was absolutely beautiful. But... Here's the thing. That, whatever you pictured, that thing was not what was created in the image of God. Jordan, we're in Genesis 2. Um, that, that thing, whatever you pictured, that thing is not what God said, that is very good. That is not what he said, this is made in my image. What God declared... He said that of you. He said that of me. He said that of every other person we interact with. Made in my image. And I think that as we value life, as we value life, we display the glory of God to the world. If you're writing something down, that's, that's a great number two. We display the glory of God as we value life. What are we known for valuing? What are we known for valuing? So look at verse 5 in chapter 2. 
It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into the, his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Again, a more in-depth look at what we saw in chapter 1 last week. But does that, does that passage sound familiar to anything else that we've gone through on Sunday mornings or the last three months? I see one nod. I was hoping I'd get at least one. That God would speak the breath of life into something that was not yet alive. Want to tell him? Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, God speaks life into the valley of dry bones. Like The wording is, is very, very similar here. We're going to come back to this more in a little bit. But we see God speaking life. And I just love this foreshadowing. I love this, this picture, this consistent picture we see through Scripture. Because based on this, based on Ezekiel, based on a lot of New Testament, our God is a life giver. Our God is a life giver. That's a great third thing to write down. Our God is a life giver. It's one of the characteristics of God. Verse 15. Then God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. It's kind of a different way to say what he already said in chapter 1, where he said, have dominion over the fish of the sea, have dominion over the, the land, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the land, have dominion. The fact that we have to work is not an effect of sin. I'm, I promise I'm not going to go back and preach a whole three-week series on the theology of work, because as I was repairing, I almost did. So if you weren't here I gave the timeline last week, so I guess it would have been fall of 2017, I think. I spent three weeks looking just at the theology of work, how as mankind we've been created to work. That is one of the ways that we reflect the glory of God in the world. It should be on SoundCloud still if you want to go find the links to that. But we see here that he's been put, mankind's been put in the garden to work, to have dominion over the plants, to, to work the land. But yet, work has such a negative connotation in our world. And yes, like work has been affected by the fall. Absolutely. Work can be hard. One of the workers, or one of the readers that I read, one of the writers that I read this week about workers said, work is a God-given assignment and not a cursed condition. We've been created to work. And I think this is one way that we live out the calling as men and women created in the image of God. We reflect God in the way that we work. Like work is not a curse. And I'm very thankful. I have a job that I love. What I get to do at ETSU, recruiting students from around the world to come and to study here at ETSU, I love my job. They're sending me to India in about three weeks that I get to go recruit students from India. And it's great. I'm super excited about it. But that doesn't mean that there are not days that I absolutely need this reminder when I go into work. I'm like, man, I don't want to go in today. 
And instead of seeing it as a joy, and seeing it as I get to step in there, reflecting the glory of God as I work, I, I need that reminder. But we see that God is a working God. God, if you want to look at the first work week, God spent six days creating. Six days creating. Like we model his work ethic. So like no matter if you have a job that you love or no matter if you have a job that you hate, wherever you are at, throw parenting in there as a job. No matter what it is, the way that we work, the ways that we work reflect the glory of God to the world. How does your work, no matter what that is, knowing that we've been created to work, how does your work reflect the glory of God? Is it seen in your attitude? Is it seen in your motivation? Is it seen in your obedience to a boss? We display the glory of God as we work. So great number four. We display the glory of God in the ways that we work. All right, still getting good here. So verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So I'll warn you up front. I'm... My goal in getting into this right now is just to give you a little teaser for next week to make you come back to hear the whole as we dive into to this. But th these verses right here, I think for me, it's so easily lumped into the conversation on Genesis 3. A man falling into sin, eating the fruit, all, all of that. But I was asking myself, what is the purpose of this right here in Genesis 2? Why does it point out that, that God created this tree, that he put it there? Why? Like elsewhere in Scripture, we see that he works all things according to the purpose of his will. So it's there for a purpose. But why? Why? And I was asking myself, I'm just leading down my train of thought that I was thinking this week, is it talks about evil, good and evil, but sin hasn't entered the world yet. That's next week. We'll see that in Genesis 3. Why? But this word evil is mentioned. It's like, man, I've never noticed that before. And I was thinking a lot about that. Again, I'm giving you a teaser. I'm not going to say a whole lot. But what is the purpose of this tree? Let me tell you part of the purpose. I'm going to read that verse again. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We so quickly miss that God just said, you may, surely, you may eat of every tree in the garden. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Just not this one. I don't think this is just God declaring what he is withholding from them. It's declaring what he's giving to them. What he's providing to them. He's given them every tree of the garden. I think that we so easily latch on to this, what he says, do not do, that we miss the, what he's providing. 
We miss that. He just said, I'm giving you everything. I provided you a garden to live in. I'm providing you every tree to eat. Not that one. But we latch on to the, wait, why not that one? Wait, wait, well, why? And we miss his provision. I was just trying to think of a way to make this click. And I was, so imagine putting 10 pieces of candy in front of a, in front of a child. 10, or Joe. He got really excited. <laughs> uh, 10 pieces of candy. He said, Joe, you can have any of those nine, but that one you can't have. Which one does that child now want most? It's the one, right? Because you said you can't have that. Before, before, if you would not have said anything, there was probably a 10% chance that child was going to choose that one. But as soon as we say, you can't have that, that's the child, that's all, all they want. And before we think how silly that is, I can almost guarantee you that if we took one of those crockpots of chili away and put it back and said, you can't have that one. You can have these two. You can't have that one. As we walk by, you're going to be looking at that third one saying, why can't I have that one? Wait, is that one really good? Why can't I have that one? You would do it. You would do it. We call this sin. We want what we cannot have. We want what we cannot have. It's, it's, it's our nature. But we think it's foolish. Man, this kid is going to turn around, turn away those nine pieces of candy because they're so stuck on the one. In my, in my short parenting experience, they're going to get themselves so in trouble because they can't have the one that they're not going to get any. That's usually how it seemed to play out. But here we see, we don't get a lot of Adam and Eve, their, their reaction to this. We don't get anything they say, so I don't want to speculate. I'm saying this more so for us right now as we think about this passage. Because God had just provided everything. Provided them the land to live in, a garden, trees to eat, all everything they would ever need. And yet, we, we know what happens. But what about you and I? Do we find ourselves in this same, the same boat where we get so lashed on to what God has seemingly not provided? We hear the second part of the statement, the second part of the verse that says, you cannot have this. And we get latched on there that we miss his provision. We miss that he says, I've given you every good thing. Everything you need has been provided. And let me, let me just say, I think that the point of this, part of the point of this being there, the tree in the garden, is to show them what God is providing. God is saying, look at what I've provided. He's setting up this up in a way that his provision is most seen. Where he is most relied on where the most worship is being drawn to him as creator, him as provider. We focus on the negative. We so easily do that. But this is as God's provision written all over it. And God's provision hasn't changed one bit. Like He's still providing absolutely everything that we need. I think that's a lot of Genesis 2 here, is God providing. God providing the, the land, the animals, the garden, everything to eat that mankind, who's been made in his image, everything that they could ever want. 
God's saying, don't look elsewhere. Don't look elsewhere for what you need. Let me provide that. You don't have to flip there if you don't want to, but Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, we see that, that God is still providing. He has still promised to provide for his mankind, created in his image. I'm going to start in verse 26. It says, Look at the birds in the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. What he's saying is like, made in the image of God? Like, we have more value than the lilies. More value than the birds of the air. God will provide. God will provide. If you're looking for a fifth thing to write down, it's that God is provider. He's showing them here in Genesis 2 that he will provide. He's enough. His provision is enough. There's nowhere else they need to look. So ultimately, I know that I just left more questions about the tree of good and evil. I know that I left more questions there than I answered. And you've got to come back next week. Because we look at man falling into sin as they reject the good provision of their creator, of their God. But I want to move into one more part here in Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. It's the creation of woman. And there's a couple of things in here that I want to make sure we don't miss. Verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It is not good that man should be alone. So we see something that's not good. God just says, This is good, this is good, this is good. Mankind, this is very good. And now we see it's something's not good. And I want to clarify something really quick because I've heard this verse used a lot to say that, hey, you need to get married because it's not good that man should be alone. Like, oh, brother so-and-so, God wants you to be married. He just said it's not good to be alone. And I think that's an improper usage of this verse. I don't think that's what this is saying because Paul, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it can be good not to be married. He actually says you can devote yourself better to ministry and to the gospel. If not being married, then you can be married because you're distracted. Like, so this is not a command that every single person should be married. It's not a point that single people or any are lesser. You do not have to be married to be complete in the eyes of God. But what I think he's saying is that mankind, we've been created for community. We've been created for relationship. We've been created to be in unity with others. And we see, I think this is one of the ways that we image God in our We've been built for community. We've been built for relationships. As just as God, the Trinity, before creation, let us make man perfect unity, relationship. People in the history of the church 
history of the world, culture, in and out, inside the church, outside the church, have used this section of verses and, and others to downplay the importance of women. People have taken this verse and other verses to say that women are less important, that they are just the little helper. And I think far too many people have read this and, and come to that conclusion that it's maybe a man's world and women are just here to, to help. And I think that is absolutely wrong and dangerous. And I just want to say that. And I, I don't say it to be funny, but people, it's almost as if like a kindergarten teacher who calls up their little helper up and says, here, come be my little helper and pass out the pencils. Like there's a very clear distinction there of, of who's the teacher and who's not the teacher. It's almost like a, you can be my little helper. Help me do something that, that, that would be a little helpful for me. I believe this reading of this text, if we read that into it, and those who have, it's inaccurate, it's harmful, it's destructive, it's wreaked havoc on our culture and in our church. This is not the hierarchy that's being painted here in Genesis 2. Not, not, not at all. Not at all. This, this word helper, many of you know this, but I think it's really, really important. This, that, word, that Hebrew word for helper, used in the Old Testament, used right here in Genesis 2, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament multiple times. And most commonly it's used of God as help, helper. Look at Psalm 33. It says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. It says, He is our help, our shield. That, that help word is the exact same word that's used in Genesis 2. Is that picture, that absurd picture of the kindergarten teacher and their little helper, is that appropriate? Not at all. That's not at all what the word is trying to convey. Because when it calls woman helper, it's not talking about an importance. It's not talking about value. Not at all. And if we, if we say that it is, we're missing the point of Genesis 2. Because as without woman being created, God's like, there, there was something missing. It was not fully complete. So I see it like man's like incomplete without woman, but woman would be incomplete without man. But there's not a statement about importance, about the importance of man or woman in this text. Both genders created by God. Both genders created by God in his image. And as far as value goes, as far as distinction goes, there is no, as, sorry, as far as importance goes, as far as value goes, there's no distinction. I think we see the roles clearly established. Different roles, but not different value, not different importance. Both made in the image of God with the same value. But I want, it's easy to, again, miss the provision in these verses. Like, once again, God provides. God doesn't leave it up to Adam to make himself complete. God doesn't leave it up to Adam to say, now go take what is, I just said is not very good, not good, and go make it good. He doesn't leave it up to Adam. God provides. Once again, God provides. And I didn't, like, this all didn't just, like, it jumped out at me. And probably the 50th time I read through this passage this week. It was Friday night as 
I was sitting there and like look, reading this. It's like, oh my goodness, over and over and over. I had seen it in a couple different spots, but it's this whole passage is God providing over and over and over again. God creating all that is. God creating, providing for them everything they need to eat. They're providing the land to live in. God providing a woman for man. God, God completing it. God is doing it over and over and over again. Like that God that provided has not stopped providing. Right now, just the fact that you are here, the fact that you are here shows the grace of God in your life. Like, the fact that you are here. But if we go beyond that, I bet if I gave you five seconds, you could think of ways that God has provided for you. In many ways. But again, going back to the question I asked earlier, I think we, I, get way too caught up in what he hasn't, what we we, we see, man, God, you haven't given me that yet. This is something I want. And we get so caught up in that that we miss what he has provided. Rhetorical question, but what about you? What do you find yourself dwelling on? What do you find yourself going to God for? What do you, where do you find yourself what do you find yourself meditating on? Is it what God has given you? What he's provided you with? Or is it just what we, he hasn't given you yet? Like, I really think that this is just painting a picture of God's provision. We see it again in Matthew 6. We see God saying, I'm going to provide. I'm going to provide. I just want to stand here and remind you that God still provides. Like, that is not just a Genesis 2 statement. That is not a Genesis 3. We're going to see it in Genesis 3. We're going to see it in Genesis 4. We're going to see it all throughout Scripture, God providing. But we so quickly default to trying to provide for ourselves. We so quickly default to trying to take it into our own hands. We so quickly reject what God has provided and we want something better. We've all done this. We've all done this. I feel like I do it daily basis. This sin wreaked havoc in our lives as we reject the Creator, as we choose creation. But listen, like in that story, that we have done, God doesn't leave it up to us to fix the problem. He, doesn't, he didn't leave it up to us to fix what went wrong. Just like he didn't leave it up to Adam to take what was not good and make it good, God didn't leave it up to us. Ephesians, 1, Ephesians 2, 1, we're memorizing on Sunday night. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Just leave it, leave, we can leave it right there. You were dead, like that is the hope that we had. No hope. Like God did not leave it up to us to do that. Verse 4 starts, but God, but God, he did this. Like we see his future, looking here at Genesis 2, we see his future provision, Jesus Christ. We see it all over here too, because that is how God is going to provide for the salvation of sin and meet our biggest need. Like we see God providing life, giving life over and over and over again. God speaking life. Genesis 2 
Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Ezekiel 37, God speaks life into dry bones. And that life is only found in Jesus. It's only found in Jesus. All those times we turned away, all those times we tried to provide for ourselves, all those times we rejected the Creator and what He has commanded, all those times, God did not leave it up to us to fix. Did not leave it up to us to finally make the right decision. No, He came after us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He, did, he does it. He does it. Like this provision in Genesis 2, this provision we see over and over and over again, is just a foreshadow of God's provision through Christ. Like, hear that, Christians, like, hear that. Like, this provision is just a foreshadow of the provision of Jesus, the salvation that we have, that we can know God. We can be adopted into his family. Praise God. And for, for those that don't know Jesus, like this is saying again, God, God is a life giver. Gives life when we have none. I just talked about it. That We've all chosen the creation. We've all chosen the world. We've all rejected God. But life is found in Jesus, forgiveness, provision. I'll just say it again. God is provider. Over, thank you, over and over and over again. Amen, yes. He is provider. Over and over and over again. Even next week in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, sin enters the world. One of the most awful chapters we can read, we see then God providing and saying, no, no, I'm still going to fix this. I'm still going to send Jesus. I'm still going to provide for my people. So I, I, as the church, as I just want us like, look at what God has done. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's done. Remind yourself of what he's done. Remind yourself of how he has given life, how he's provided for you. Does that lead us to worship? Does that lead you to that same awe as we, as we picture that creation? He has provided for us, and he will provide in the future. I just pray that as, as we look at this text that we would value life, as we see the, the world so not valuing life, that we would value life and that all life. That would, that would be apparent in the words we say, in the conversations we have. That as we work, we would value life and see us as made in the image of God and we reflect him as we work. But ultimately, in our work, in our conversations, in our day-to-day. -day. Trust the provision of God. Let's pray.